Well, today we begin a new teaching series here in St. John's called Thriving Where You Are. And throughout this series, we're going to follow what some would call a tragic story of a man named Joseph. And however, as we walk with Joseph and look at his life events and God's abiding presence throughout his life and his story, we're going to find out quickly that Joseph's story is actually an inspirational story of God's presence and God's providence. And today we're going to begin our journey with Joseph and his rocky childhood and his young life. And we'll see that his father, Jacob, makes some choices that create a toxic family situation. And his brothers um, eventually have a toxic sibling relationship that creates a, how do I say it, murderous intent. Very, very rocky start for young Joseph. But we discover that no matter how, no matter how good or how bad our earthly parents are, no matter how good or how bad our siblings may be, God is the perfect parent. Christ is the perfect spouse. And God never abandons us, no matter what we're going through in life. Let's take just one moment to pray together. Holy God, we ask that you be in this place. Do you invade our lives? That through the stories, that through your word, through the prayers, through the songs, Lord, you would be present in our hearts and our lives. Use the story of Joseph, Lord, to impact us in a way that transforms our lives. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Have you ever felt as though other people have more to say about your life than you do? Do you ever feel as though other people have more to say about your life than you do? Sometimes it seems as though we don't get much say in the way things turn out in our lives. Other people make choices or, or take actions or make decisions that have consequences and, or repercussions and that affect our lives. Have you ever felt as though you were sitting in the passenger seat of the car, watching as though life were just happening to you and going by in the window, as though you were a bystander in your own life? Or maybe, maybe, perhaps, it's not the people in your life right now or that seem to control the outcomes of your life. Maybe it's the, the past that haunts your present. Maybe you were the victim of something that happened that devastated your young life, some past sin that happened to you, or perhaps it was something that you did that, that follows you and controls your present life. Whether it's, it's shame or it's, it's guilt or, or even legal consequences, with such a rocky start, have you ever felt as though you were dealt a lousy hand? What about family? Is there such a thing as a perfect family? No matter what they say on Facebook. <laughs> I just finished my fourth Christmas, family Christmas last night. Okay. Maybe it was a parent that wasn't present. Maybe it was 
uh, parent that was emotionally abusive or, or maybe it was a parent that was overly present and, or whatever it was, um, there's a hurt that still resurfaces all these years later or perhaps it was the social economic status of your upbringing that, that still drives your current experience or your current life. And as you watch control just slip through your hands, how do you deal with the reality of a rocky family upbringing? If our home life sets the stage for the course of our future, if that's our foundation, and we have a rocky start, are we destined to fail in life? If we're born into a troubled family with toxic parents or toxic siblings who manipulate our lives in some way, can we still grow to live productive lives in the future, to have success in our lives? Can, can God take our brokenness, our broken lives, our broken past, and turn them into something that is more than what we were, more than our upbringing? Can we become more than our upbringing? Is it possible to thrive where we're planted, regardless of where we are, regardless of our family history, regardless of our past? And the answer is yes, because God is the perfect parent. God is the perfect parent. In the book of Genesis, there's a story about a young boy who came from an extremely troubled home, and his parents had significant issues. I mean, hands down, if I could say bad parents, I would say bad parents. He had highly toxic relationships with his brothers who put him through an undeniably harsh relationship and a harsh situation. And, and through all the drama and trauma that Joseph endured, his, the story teaches us that God is present in every situation, whether it's a high situation or a low situation in life, because God's presence, because of God's presence, because God is a perfect parent, we can thrive in whatever situation that we come across. Today we're going to begin our journey with a 17-year-old Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. I don't know if you remember being 17, but I do. We're going to start with a 17-year-old Joseph. If you didn't bring your Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to join me on page 60 of your pew Bibles um, we're going to start in verse 3 this morning. So chapter 37, verse 3, starts like this. Now Israel, Israel is the name for Jacob. Jacob, Israel, Israel, Jacob. That would be Joseph's father. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an, an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, you may think that your family life was rough growing up, but Joseph's family life takes rough upbringing, rough home life to a whole new level. A superficial reading of this passage paired with, you know, our... our pop culture rendition of Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, 
leaves us with a very misguided view of the actual family dynamic of what has taken place for Jacob and Joseph in this story. The hatred that Joseph's brothers felt for him. Their toxic relationship was the byproduct of Joseph's actions. Sorry, of Jacob's actions. Jacob, the dad's actions. Daddy's deal, not Joseph's deal. Jacob's decisions in regards to his wives and children had significant consequences to the entire family, especially to Joseph. And many of those decisions were made before Joseph was even born, and thereby were completely outside of his control, outside of Joseph's control completely. Let me, let me key you in on Bad Parenting 101 from, <clears throat> from uh, Jacob's life. Now, when I was a kid, my dad used to sing a song called I Am My Own Grandpa, and some of you will know that song. This story feels like that song. In Genesis 29, Jacob went to Padam Aram and met a man named Laban, and he falls deeply in love with his daughter, Rachel, and he wants to marry her. And so Jacob offers to work for Laban for seven years in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. Laban agrees, and after seven years, at their wedding night, Laban pulls a switcheroo, and Jacob actually marries uh, Rachel's older sister, Leah, wakes up the next morning in bed with uh, Leah and with the wrong sister, and he's surprised. Don't know how he didn't see it, but somehow the next morning he realized he slept with the wrong sister. He complains to his father-in-law, and father-in-law says, our tradition dictates that the uh, oldest sister has to be married first, and so Jacob works another seven years so that he can marry his greatest love. Now, here's where things get kind of funny. If that wasn't sticky enough as it is, God blesses Leah with children through Jacob because he doesn't love her. Does that not sound weird to you? God blesses Leah with children because Jacob doesn't love her. Genesis 29, 31 says, When the Lord saw that Leah was, not, or Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. You see, Jacob doesn't love her emotionally. He just loves her physically. So Leah bears him four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel, Jacob's greatest love, gets upset because her big sister is having kids with Jacob, her husband, and she doesn't have any. And so she yells at Jacob, to which Jacob says, am I, this is Genesis 32, am I in the place of God? Who has kept you from having children? And every married man in the room just cringes like nails on a chalkboard. Who says that to their wife? Like, you know that conversation doesn't end well. There's no way Jacob's not in trouble for this. And in response, in response, Rachel gives her servant girl, Bahala, or Bahai, to Jacob as a wife to bear sons for Jacob, just like Sarai did with Abram and Hagar earlier in Genesis. And Balha has Dan and Naphtali. Well, then big sister Leah sees that Rachel's servant is having kids, and that dog won't hunt. And so Leah gives um, his, her, her servant, uh, Zelphi, to, as a wife too. And she, and then 
um, Jacob have Gad and Asher, and then to top it all off, Leah and uh, Rachel have this little feud, and she wins, and then she conceives Ishkar and Zebulun, and then a daughter, Dinah. No, not Jerry Springer, not Murray, Genesis, the chapters of Genesis prior to this story. This is God's word. This is a pretty messed up family. We are not talking about this is a pretty good dad here. At this point, Jacob has 10 sons. 10 sons. 10. With three women. And the woman that he loves the most, his prized wife, has none. Finally, God blesses Rachel with a son, Joseph. And now Jacob, who is much older, was still working for his father-in-law. And so Jacob, by the way, Jacob's name, it means the deceiver. If you remember the Jacob Esau story, stealing the birthright, right? This is the man we're talking about, Jacob the deceiver. Deceives his father-in-law, Laban. Steals all of his wealth by some manipulation of the herds. Spots, no spots. Pretty cool story. Steals almost all of his father-in-law's wealth, packed up his wives and his children, moves back to Canaan. How would you feel if your spouse told you every day of your life that he or she loved someone else more than you? How secure would your self-image be if your spouse expected you to conceive biological children, but you were infertile? What would happen to your emotional state if you had to watch your spouse give all of their time and attention to someone else's children and never to the children that you bore together? This is the home that Jacob created as a father. But think about it from a child's point of view. From a child's point of view, how would you feel if all you ever heard your parents say was how much they loved someone else that was not your mother or father? How, how would you respond at the dinner table if your parent only cared about one of your siblings and never you? And if your parent only cared about one sibling's life? Moreover, what if your parent gave all everything to one sibling and only relegated you to manual labor? Your job is to go watch the sheep. Get out of my sight. I love this one more. What if your father made it clear that you were his child, but you were not loved as much as the one special one that he put on a pedestal? This is the home in which Joseph grew up in. Now, some here have lived through this. This is not just out of the Bible. This is out of our lives as well because some of us in this room have experienced this in their life, in their families. And you know these dynamics. You understand them because we... And you understand this this underwriting that frames this whole narrative. Jacob shakes things up in the story with this ornate robe. It, it's, it's not the Technicolor dream coat. It's a long-sleeved, long robe. 
with some color to it that he makes with his own hands. And in the culture, it signified importance or maybe even royalty. But to Reuben, the oldest son, what it would have meant is that Jacob chose Joseph to be the most important man in the family. Just like Jacob was the first over Esau, the youngest is more important than the oldest, Joseph is now more important than Reuben, the oldest. The youngest leads the oldest. And to complicate the situation, Joseph starts talking about these dreams that he's had, that his brothers are going to bow down to him, and another dream where his father and mother are going to, the sun and the moon are going to bow down. 17-year-old spoiled brat. I'm going to bow down to you? He seems to be arrogant, and he only aggravates the situation. And the situation came to a head when the ten brothers were out shepherding Jacob's flocks. And when Joseph was set, sent out to check on them, we pick up the story again in verse 17. So in verse 17, we pick, it, pick up the story. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near um, Doleth. Uh, let me see, I lost it. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. And they saw him in the distance. And before they reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw, throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a fierceous animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, the oldest brother, Reuben, whose birthright is now void, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into a cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay his, a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robes, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty where there was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. The camels were loaded with spices, balms, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will be gained if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianites merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And when Reuben turned returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there. He tore his clothes, went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped it in blood. They took the robe back to where their father was. Joseph's brothers took the robe back and he wept over it. His beloved son was dead. Lies upon lies upon lies, compounding, compounding effect of brokenness. It continued unchecked. And then our text today ends with, with verse 36. Meanwhile, 
The Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Which brings us to our first point this morning, which is that compound effect of brokenness. We often feel as though our life breaks into pieces. However, when, when our life seems to fall apart, whether it's our family situation, our careers, our relationships, or, or anything else, we, we experience a compound effect of brokenness. You see, Joseph's brothers didn't just wake up one day and want to murder him. Their hate grew. It built up to this point. There's a definite triangulation that takes place here. Jacob loved too much. Right? Jacob loved too much. Joseph was loved too much. And the brothers weren't loved enough. A triangulation effect created by Jacob's disproportionate love created the environment where the compound effect of brokenness could take place. And it begins with the basic jealousy of a father's favoritism. Favoritism created the system where jealousy could build, and it builds into anger against Joseph and was, as he was singled out above his brothers with a new robe. And then eventually it grew, it grew into rage and anger and finally culminated with his murderous intent. And as the brokenness built and went unchecked by Joseph, or by Jacob. You see, Jacob could have stepped in and said, hey, this is not acceptable. Our family doesn't act like this. We have a standard. We do not treat our family this way. Jacob could have stepped in, but Jacob was passive. And as you read through Jacob's story, he continually is passive and does not step in. Just read chapter 38 if you want to see how Jacob responds when his daughter has some major issues happen in her life. Joseph gets caught in the middle. And we all get caught in the middle sometimes. Sometimes it's our family bringing that, our, our family upbringing that compounds, taking us to places of brokenness. And like Joseph, our parents or our grandparents' decisions or indecisions that lead us to a place of brokenness. But Paul says in Romans 3.23 that for, for I have sinned or for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, he, and here's the reality. Every person has sinned. Every single person has sinned. Every spouse has sinned. Every parent has sinned. Every grandparent has sinned. Every child has sinned. Every person has sinned. Everyone has sinned. And there's no such thing as a perfect parent. There's no such thing as a perfect spouse. No matter what you read in Parenting Magazine, we're on Newlywed Online. And if you believe that there is such thing as a perfect marriage, or you believe there's a such thing as a perfect parent, you, you're believing in a false reality that does not exist because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. A marriage doesn't dissolve, nor a child become estranged from a family overnight. It is a compound brokenness over time. Sometimes we add fuel to the fire, like Joseph. Let me tell you about a dream about how you're going to bow down to me. Maybe he didn't need to share it just like that. Sometimes we add to the brokenness. Sometimes the fire is fed by other people. Or sometimes we are like Joseph and we find ourselves in a situation that is completely outside of our control because of something that someone else has done. 
and we find ourselves on a slave train to Egypt. But here's the amazing thing. here's Here's the crazy part of this whole thing. No matter how bad Jacob screwed up as a dad, and no matter how bad Rachel and Leah's sister's feud became, no matter how lost Joseph's brothers became in their jealousy, in their rage, and in their anger, no matter what happened to Joseph because of it, no matter what happens to us, God is the perfect parent. And he never leaves our side. God is the perfect parent. Now, I understand that every one of us has different experiences with our parents. Some of us are blessed with earthly parents that nurture us in wonderful ways. I also know that we live in a broken world and that many of us have broken relationships with our parents. And there are equally as many of us who live with parents or live with children that are estranged, estranged or live in strained relationship. Jacob and Joseph's story illustrates to us that humankind has struggled with parenting for a long time. A long time. Actually, in fact, for all of time since the fall. Because that's when sin entered the world. Every parental relationship is broken in some way. Every single one. Because sin infects all of our lives. There is only one perfect, perfect parental relationship. Only one that we can experience. And that is our parental relationship with our Heavenly Father. Every failing of an earthly parent. Every single failing of an earthly parent parent is an example of how God does not love his children. Every failing of an earthly parent is an example of how God does not love his children. Every example of a loving parent with a child is an illustration of how God's love flows to us. Psalm 68.5 says, God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. In Psalm 10:14 we find the psalmist saying, "But you God, see the trouble of all the afflicted. You consider the grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless." God is the perfect father. If you had the best earthly father or mother in the world, God is better than your father or mother and is better than you could ever know. If you had the worst parent in the world, God is better than you could ever imagine as a parent. God is the perfect parent, and he holds you in his hands. And we cannot fall out of God's love because he has already given us everything. And he's already given everything for us. See, God gave his one and only son for us on the cross as a sacrifice so that we could be his children. He let his own son, part of himself, die on the cross to be executed, and he could have stopped it. That's the funny thing. But he didn't. He let Jesus die so that we could become his children. And that's a love that we can never undo. That's a love that we can never break. And so there's no condition to this love that we have to meet. Jesus died for each of us before we believed. 
He died on the cross a long time ago. It's already happened. God loved us before we were even born. You see, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. God loved us first, you see. This is, he's the perfect parent, and he's with us in every single event of our life. It's kind of like, I, I envision it like how I loved my children before they were born. It's kind of like that with God. God loved us before. Our last point this morning is that God is at work in all things. I want you to notice in this whole scripture that we've read today, that we worked through, God was not referenced once. Did you notice that? If you read the entire chapter, God is not referenced once. It doesn't say, it doesn't even say that the dreams that Joseph had at this point came from God. But still, regardless, whether we talk about it or not, regardless of whether we see it or not, God was still at work. You see, sometimes we forget that God is present in our lives when life gets hard, when, we, when things get out of control, and we get caught up in the situations of life. But just because we don't say that God is present, just because we don't label God in the moment, it doesn't mean that God is not present in it. Quite often we like to quote Romans 8.28 after the fact. Yeah, we like that one. We put it on our coffee mugs, right? We quote 8.28 after the fact, and we miss the point that, that Paul meant that faith comes first. Because Romans 8.28 says, and we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him. You see, Paul presupposes our faith in God before the trials in our life, though. That faith will see us through because we know that God has not abandoned us. We know that God will never leave our sides. We know that God is at work in all things. So once, when the religious leaders were ridiculing Jesus for working on the Sabbath, Christ responded in John by saying, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. See, God is always at work. But it begs the question, what does this mean for our lives? What does this mean for Joseph as he rides on the slave train to Egypt? What does it mean to say that God is in our lives when we deal with these hard situations? And how do we use it when, when life seems to be outside of our control, in our personal lives and in our families and all of these, in all of this? How does knowing that God is with us help us if it doesn't change our current situation? Because Joseph is, a, is going to Egypt to be a slave, It means that no matter what the trial, burden, trouble, or brokenness in life that we face, God is the perfect parent, and we can lean on him in our time of, lean, our, our time of need. It means that Jesus is the perfect spouse because the church is the bride of Christ, after all. And he will live in perfect relationship with us no matter what we are going through. Because remember, he was, he's been here before. He's walked in our shoes he knows what it's like. It means that no matter what situation arises in our life, whether, we, whether it is beyond our control or not, God will never, ever leave our side. And we know that we are not alone. And it doesn't fix the situation because Joseph's still going to Egypt. It doesn't magically make it all better. But it lets us breathe a little easier.
And that's a big deal for us, to be able to breathe a little easier in the stress of it all. It lets us stand a little taller when you know who your father is. It increases the gait of our stride to stand with confidence. It lets us face our day with confidence and hope because our perfect parent is with us through all things. It's that undeniable look of a person that you look at and you say, there's something different about them. They have something about them that breeds confidence. I wish I had that. I wonder what it is in their life that makes them live like that. As we endure and keep our eyes on God, remember the promise God gave in Deuteronomy 31.6. He said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. God, you are our perfect parent. Let us be your faithful children. As we see the brokenness in our lives compound around us, give us the strength we need to act to break down the cumulative effect of our sin. Help us to model our lives after your son who shows us what a perfect spouse and friend looks like. In all that we do, Lord, we give you glory. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.